0: Thanks very much for joining us on this, this second part of the family office series of talks and webinars. Uh, today, we'll deal with family office privacy. Now, Just before we get started, I'd like to just introduce panelists. Obviously, I'm Zach Lucas from uh, Spencer West. Happy to be joined by Nancy Chin from uh, Bedell, Kristen in Jersey, who's uh, head of their private client team there. Aki Korzoni hussein who's partner head of regulatory and tax at Harney's in Cyprus. John Shoemaker, who's U.S. Counsel Butler Snow in Singapore. Steve Sokic at uh, uh, IQEQ Group Head, uh, actually based in Jersey, not UK. Andrew Ho, Head of Private Wealth, IQEQ Singapore. And then from the cybersecurity side, which is different for us, um, we've got Paul Jackson, who's uh, uh, Head of Cybersecurity and Investigations at Kroll Hong Kong. Then we've got Jez Owen, who's Managing Director, Cyber Risk. Uh, based in Singapore for CRO. So very grateful for everyone to be uh, on this panel. It's a larger panel than we usually have. Um, just before we get started, I'll just do the usual admonitions when it comes to these, uh, these forms of virtual roundtables. Um, this is not meant to be legal advice, not to be relied upon as legal advice and doesn't form a legal relationship with anybody on the panel. Um, this is just effectively the, uh, the the honest views of the practitioners involved and so it shouldn't be relied for any other purpose than just uh, broad guidance. I just need to say that at the beginning, just so that we are, we are clear on the, the scope of the, the discussion that's ahead. Okay, now i will just run through the agenda for today. We'll start with just setting the scene of where we are with respect to the, the ongoing battle between privacy and transparency and how all of this is transparent in, in the context of the, the humble family office, the international family office. We'll then go on to consider the single family office and the assessment of all of the myriad uh, regulatory impacts that this is now undergoing as a result of the various international initiatives, either from the FATF, the OECD, or from the European Union. We'll then take a high, you know, we'll look at a detail and we'll step back and we'll look at the, the, the wealth planning implications of all of this and the impact this is likely to have. Uh, to the industry at large, what we should be doing uh, with respect to advising clients and, and the best practices going forward. So I think it's an important aspect of this because obviously a lot of you who are joining are in the wealth management industry and you'll you'll want to know what's the best practice that we can adopt going forward, given the uh, the, the amount of transparent related uh, initiatives that are now rolling off. We'll end the webinar with a discussion that's not usual for us, but I think is extremely important in the context of single-family offices, particularly deregulated single-family offices, which is the cybersecurity risk and the infrastructure around um, how families can protect their uh, their privacy from hacking from you know, bad actors in the marketplace and what's best practice. And I think uh, Jez and obviously Paul will have um, things to say about that, which is good advice. We have time, we'll have uh, questions and answers. Now, at the end of this, uh, uh, if you've registered on this, then uh, we'll circulate both the slides, the recording, and you'll also have access to the podcast version of this going forward. So all of that will be made available um, probably in a few days after the event. Okay. so privacy versus transparency. And what I'm going to try and do is just basically set the scene where are we right now and how is this all transpiring? And I think the broad aspects here is obviously privacy and data security is is quite important. We're seeing many countries adopting data protection acts for instance, and trying to protect online security of your identity. And on the other side, we have greater emphasis on transparency uh, going forward. So I think things that we ought to take into consideration going forward are, The COVID-19 policy responses that we're likely to see tax administrators around the world adopting. The significant economic and fiscal impact that COVID-19 has had as in is continuing to have. The rather restricted policy choices that jurisdictions will have. They can't do austerity because in many cases they're already in austerity. So that's not a choice. And where this all plays out when it comes to high net worth engagement strategy and what's informing that strategy going forward. I'll share a couple of sort of pressure group issues that come up with what is the high net worth engagement strategy likely to be. So we have policy reports; they're published every year. Uh, tax Justice Network publishes a, a yearly policy report on the state of tax justice, and sometimes these are endorsed by institutions like the United Nations and their uh, financial integrity and sustainability guidelines. Now, what do they say? Well, in the context of uh, uh, private wealth held internationally. This is what tax justice will say. They say roughly 171 billion in lost taxes per year are attributable to individuals, to private, high net worth individuals. You might, you know, have a look at this. It's free on the internet. You can get it and download it and read the methodology. You might not agree with it, but the the, the context in which this is published, policymakers take it into consideration and they also take it very seriously. So it sets the scene of what they think is happening internationally and the steps that they need to take. Um, that's quite a high figure, 171 billion per year. So, as I say, you might take a look um, and say, rightly or wrongly, that figure is it's incorrect. We also have a constant stream now, yearly stream of data leaks and sensational data leaks showing um, you know, structures that some are compliant, some are non-compliant, and it seems to be a recurring theme. We recently have the sort of Swiss papers recently came out. And these, this is an accelerator. But also in this context now, sadly, we also have this, which is the troubles that we're having in Ukraine. And I I mention it not to be political in any way, but just to say that I think that this is going to be an enormous accelerator to many of the initiatives that were planned or were implemented in a sort sort of spot specific way with some jurisdictions doing it and some not doing it. I think that the problems here with the oligarchs and the targeting of private wealth for some of these oligarchs we will likely see an accelerator to a lot of the initiatives that are currently uh, in the pipeline, but have not had the impetus. I think that that's going to be one of the um, one of the net effects of the uh, the, the current crisis going on in in the Ukraine. So that's setting the scene, not particularly joyous and pretty grim, actually, in terms of how the industry is being portrayed uh, in terms of cross-border wealth and structuring them in a better way. So then that leads us to the, the sort of humble family office and how it's getting caught up in the crossfire of all of this stuff, and so the assessment that i'm going to go through. will look at beneficial ownership registers, where are we at with this what's going on um, how you know, is it companies trusts, both whatever assets. Then we'll look at some of the uh, mandatory disclosure rules that uh, have, have been previously published by the OECD and look particularly at opaque offshore structures and how that works. We'll look at economic substance rules they're now a reality and see some of how that works and some of the issues surrounding that we'll look at the common reporting standard as it applies to family offices in particular we'll also look at FATCA again as it applies to family offices and then we'll wrap up with a, a look at real estate because i think that's going to be an asset class that's going to be particularly targeted going forward for some of these transparent initiatives that are being rolled out We'll look at U.S. real estate first, and then we'll look at UK real estate. All of this in the context of investments held by a family office. Okay, so as we always, we do a schematic to to help illustrate the structures at hand Uh, here. The schematic is a trust holding company, a fund management company and a fund company. Uh, This is a classical uh, Singapore single family office structure. So I'm using this as the, as the basis. I haven't expanded the structure to show a purpose trust holding the, uh, the sort of shares of the private trust company, et cetera. I think we'll stay with a basic format of trust holding company and then the fund management and fund company. Now for jurisdictions, I'm going to choose Jersey, BVI, BVI. So Jersey Trust, BVI Hold Co, uh, and then BVI fund company with a Singapore fund management company. Again, a fairly typical structure for a lot of the high net worths that are using Singapore. Finally, the interested persons in the structure. So we have beneficiaries, we have a settler and then we have a protector or a power holder. So, again, classical stuff if you're used to how these structures look on a a piece of paper. Now, beneficial ownership registers is the first thing that we're going to discuss. And I'll I'll probably invite uh, Aki, um, if he could help us to just run through how these actually work. How does it work, a Beneficial Ownership Register, particularly looking at it from the context of uh, what's going on right now in places like the BVI? And we've got, obviously, a Hold Co and a fundco Co, both of which are indicated as being in the BVI. So, Aki, how do these things generally work at the moment?
1: Isaac and, and and thanks, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, pleasure to be uh, speaking on, on this on this webinar so um, beneficial ownership registers, how do they work well well I think from from an offshore perspective it's fair to say we don't we don't have um, lots of lots of data to go off um these are these are new measures that are being introduced um we, what we're generally looking at as, as a guidance for this are, 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 are for example countries like the UK um, and other uh, and, and EU member states. Um, and what we are seeing is that there is some, um, there are some discrepancies, but, but in, in, in the detail of, of these registers. But in broad terms, you, the 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 registers work by effectively uh, requiring each company or the directors on, on, on the companies to to lodge information, typically with a corporate registrar, um, as to um, it, persons with, with 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 significant interests. Um, typically above 25% um, in, in the company. And so details would have to be lodged. Now, whether you get into the question of, of um, for example, with this structure here, as to whether the set law or the protector or the beneficiaries need to be disclosed, um, again, we're seeing discrepancies looking at EU member states, uh, but yeah. between sort of data that needs to be disclose some of you member states for example are saying that you only need to disclose the trust so it's enough just to have the trust disclosed um, so name of the trust others um, look through the trust to um, including um, data on beneficiaries settlors, and protectors I mean on the whole um, the, 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 the the registers the AML rules uh, on which the registers are based, yeah. um are starting to line up more closely with concepts within crs as well so so where you can't identify someone then it's usually that you need to um identify someone that has some sort of material control over the arrangement um, right. whoever that may be um right, right. so i think that's in a nutshell
0: right and is it public at the moment from a bbi perspective <laughs> uh,
1: no so the register the public beneficial ownership registers have not been Uh, introduced yet in 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 the bvi
0: right right because we have um what was touted as a a sort of draft statutory instrument um effectively compelling the overseas territories to institute a um a publicly accessible beneficial ownership register and then this is with respect to companies and then there was this you know sort of background you know sort of political dealings and then one by one the overseas territories lined up and said, yes, they will go voluntarily without having it foisted onto them. Is that still the case? Are we still online for public access to beneficial ownership of companies uh, into 2023? Is that still the case?
1: That, that, is, that continues to be the commitment date, the relevant commitment date. The last public announcement from the BVI on this was, was back in 2020. Um, and again, the, the, the premier, um mentioned that uh you know the commitment would be that these registers would you know would, would be implemented in 2023 now we haven't had a recent update um so so it's difficult to say you know what what's what's the state of play as at today on this it's all being held as you would appreciate quite closely to government
0: right very I mean, clearly huh. You know I, I don't know if you've been watching some of the political announcements and um, what Boris has been saying in the UK, but the, the the sort of mad push that they've got now to push through legislation, he's he's making it clear that this will also, everything he's talking about, will also apply to British Overseas Territories. So I think given the context of what's going on in Ukraine and the clampdown on the oligarchs, um, it's probably unlikely that the UK would relent on these registers actually being operational i mean is it possible that we could have these registers being foisted at a faster rate than 23 given the context
1: the the registers i think go to the heart of uh, the constitutional relations between the overseas territories and the uk um so so um the the overseas territories um are um internally have full internal self-governance guaranteed by their constitutional orders so 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 what that what that really means is that um, to the extent that the it's an internal matter and, and typically you know company law is is considered an internal matter for for each territory that that's determined wow. by the territory but I think with the Ukraine crisis um that 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 suddenly becomes a matter of you could argue you know um, um, foreign policy. Yeah. Um, and the, and the uk actually is responsible for for foreign policy for sanctions rollout in the overseas territories directly so it's it's a very interesting um uh, area to look at the 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 these two these two potential yeah. um, issues
0: but they're, they're probably not going to do it in in the way in which targeted sanctions or a targeted um register just for Russian related beneficial owners, it will probably be a broad brush. The whole lot is open to, to public scrutiny and not just a targeted basis. That's probably right, isn't it? Um, that's that's that that
1: that is that is correct. We, we haven't seen any restrictions on um as a matter of sanctions law yet, although the, the position is constantly evolving. We haven't seen any restrictions on on on, on Russians holding assets in, in, yeah. in companies. Yeah. Um so so and I think. You know, I mean, who who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, this this overseas territories order that you have up here is framed in the same way that as sanctions legislation when it's implemented in yes. the overseas territories, it's an ordering council. It's, it's yeah, it goes back to imperial legislation yes. and and all those sorts of things. So um, yeah, I, I mean, he, 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 let, let's wait and see what happens.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, it's not just the overseas territories, but it's also the Crown dependencies. Nancy, from your perspective, uh, you're in Jersey. Um, How is this playing out in Jersey? Have we got preparations for this? Um, Have we got any sort of draft legislation going? What what does it look like from a a Jersey Channel Island perspective when it comes to this public access to corporate registers in uh, in Jersey?
2: Thank you very much, Zach. Um, no, it's, uh, it's been interesting because I think insofar as the Channel Islands are concerned, they've always been the early adopters of these transparency measures. Um, in particular, if you look at the history, um, CRS, FATCA, you know, they were one of the early adopters when it comes to having a register for collating beneficial ownership information. Yeah. Um, they're also one of the earlier adopters. But it's a completely different question as to whether that information should be, become available in the public sector.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, so in, in so far as the Channel Island position is concerned, um, Actually, I don't think a huge amount has been done since that public statement was made. Um, And I think the statement from memory was made in a bit of a haste because obviously, there was a lot of pressure um, from the UK um, in respect of the the overseas territories to introduce a public register for companies. And um, the Channel Islands have always been very keen to preserve its autonomy. So I wanted to release a statement to say, look, We're supportive, but at the same time, our constitutional position is that um, for measures like this, we need to adopt our own laws. We're very happy to comply with international standards, but until such time, you know, we're not going to necessarily um, introduce our own laws um, off the back of you know, our own initiative for, for things like this. So, um, and so, so far, um, there hasn't been anything uh, further in relation to this particular aspect. But having said that, um, I think the government um, has um, started to sort of implement the spirit um, of the public register. So for example, um, in January 2021, we introduced um, a new registry law. Mm. Um, So whereby certain information Um, in relation to companies will now be made available in the public Mm. Um, so in particular the information about controlling persons so directors of companies uh, will now be uh, made available in the public Mm. Um, and um, that law also affects other incorporated entities Mm. so um, in the private client space if the clients um, if they use a a foundation structure um, the information about council members um, Mm. will also be Court by that new law, so information in relation to council members will now right. be made available on the public register as well.
0: Right, and there's the I, I in terms of that, the if, yeah. If go, ahead, may- go ahead, Steve. Sorry, did you want to say something, Stephen? No. Okay, so in terms of the the uh, Channel Islands assurance that they would follow through with these registers. Um, they had this undertaking given, and it was Guernsey Jersey and Isle of Man back in June of 2019, given to the European Commission, that they would they would follow through with this upon obviously the commission reviewing um, the, the, the sort of aspects of the fifth anti-money laundering directive. Given the recent statements that we've had in the European, uh, from the European Commission, um, from Ursula and from the European Parliament, particularly in light of Ukraine, it's probably near impossible that anything will change. If anything, it, things will ramp up in this area. So do you think that in terms of the timeline 2023, we're probably locked into that going forward, if not sooner, if if things go terribly bad? I mean, what do you, what do you think, Nancy?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very valid point, you know, and, and also in Jersey, we've always been, and well, in the Channel Islands, you know, we've always been very keen to ensure that um, we don't, Well, our AMR procedures are extremely robust. So, you know, insofar as this initiative of ensuring that um, the structures are transparent, we know exactly who the owners are, you know, Mm -hmm. that goes to the very heart of um, the uh, the policy intent that's always been adopted in relation to all these measures. So, I I think that, you know, if um, there is um, the political movement, to um to to to, to expedite this yeah. process. Um I, I think that is very possible.
0: Yeah, yeah. And just to make it clear to everyone that's viewing this, when we say public access, we mean public access to the beneficial owners of the company. The beneficial owners might be through a trust. So it means effectively the controlling persons of the trust. There might be differences in the rules on what are the controlling persons of the trust. So if you had a Singapore trust sat on top of a, a, a sort of BVI company or, or a, a sort of Jersey company, you'd still have exposure, even though Singapore doesn't have this concept at the moment, because it's not a, a global standard, right? Okay. Um, Sorry, Zach, can I just <clears throat> make, a, make a quick point on the
3: Crown Dependencies, sure. Um, uh, just in addition to what Nancy was mentioning. I think one important caveat or condition that the Crown Dependencies did make in that statement, I, I think is important, which was uh, sort of referring to a level uh, playing field, um, i.e. if, the rest of the world doesn't do it; <laughs> they won't do it. So that was an important condition that they had in there, and and I agree with Nancy. Nothing's really changed since then, uh, mm. in in or nor have I seen any announcements in that respect. But I think that condition's a, an important one, uh, and we'll see how that plays out. But I don't think we've seen much uh, to suggest either way uh, on that uh, on that condition being filled or not filled.
0: Yeah, it just the problem is we've got the whole Ukraine crisis which is acting as an accelerator and an emotive issue in all of this now. Okay, yes. trust registers. So with respect to to Jersey Channel Islands, any prospect of the trust registers that we're we're now seeing obviously in the UK and the European Union, Nancy, from your perspective, any 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 mutterings about this? Uh, I think
2: there's, there has been quite a bit of pressure being put on the Channel Islands to introduce a Trust Register, but um, in particular from the UK. um, But certainly, I think the current position is that, you know, uh, we don't see the need. Really, to have a separate register for trusts, given all the other robust measures and laws that we have in relation to beneficial ownership, um, controlling persons, etc., right. uh, in particular that law I just mentioned. Yes. Um, so at the moment, there's no desire um, and appetite to introduce a trust register. Um, right. I mean, but having said that, you know, information in relation to trusts, in relation to who the beneficial owners are, controlling persons are. Um, certainly um, you know the service providers in Jersey have that information available so it's just that when you have a central register which yeah. is going you know, to be made available in the public is that something we have an appetite for I don't think so but then again you know it, it, so much of this comes down to the political pressure
0: yeah yeah Aki from your perspective looking at Cayman and BVI because they have very significant trust uh, industry. Bermuda as well actually has a has a significant presence in this as well have you seen anything from your side that would uh would indicate pressure being brought to bear on trust registers there
1: so we we haven't we haven't really seen anything um certainly from a bvi perspective um on on the trust register so i think th- i think we're all, all, all the focus is on the on the company's right uh, register um and i think even with, with the trust register again the concept of of a, of a public trust register is i think quite quite far off in in some ways. Mm. again the eu experience seems to be that there's 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 potentially a mix that there isn't a consensus that it has to be public it cannot yeah. it can exist privately um so so i think we're far off from 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 that from, from an ot perspective okay
2: yeah just one more point to add zach sorry yeah. i don't know whether we're coming on to this shortly but um just um even though there's no register for trusts um given the um the, the um the new law that i just mentioned which applies to companies yeah. um if the company if a company access the trustee of a trust, then the trustee, the PTC information mm. could be uh, made available on the public register. So yeah. there, the controlling persons, the directors of the PTC, yes. um, yeah. would be made available. So that, in the, you know, yeah. in essence, it's sort of like a form of trust register. But yeah, it's, the trust it's a bit itself is not
0: exactly. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of an indirect one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I've, I've raised the issue of the connected trust and. It's little cousin there, the connected company, and I want to mention it because obviously you can have um, overseas structures, foreign structures that have connections into the European Union or the UK either through land or having a tax liability scope or having uh, sort of regulated relationships with uh, with the regulated parties in those jurisdictions. It's important for everyone to note that that can draw you into um, a register within the European Union or the UK. If you have those connections, so the classic would be an example of a Jersey trust that owns land in the UK or owns land in the, in the European Union. That would then uh, force that Jersey trust to then have to be registered. And within the European Union, it's a bit difficult because they have a qualified public access. But they have said that um, they think that investigative journalists who are looking into money laundering offences, etc., can have access to some of this. So um, there's a bit of movement in this as well, because obviously uh, the UK has the the, the, the connected trust register. Um, the European Union has connected trust registers, but insofar as companies are concerned, the European Union have got draft legislation that foreign companies that have connections into um, the European Union would then have to be registrable going forward. The UK hasn't gone that far, except for something I'll say later on about land. But what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is that you can indirectly get involved in these. Public registers within the European Union, the UK. If you have sufficient attachments, so if you're a Singapore trustee or a Hong Kong trustee, be well aware: if you're attaching into the European Union, UK, you can draw yourself into the registrable format. Lastly, on this was just the FATF position. Um, generally, FATF uh, don't take up public registration as their their core approach to this. They have a, what they call a sort of multi-pronged approach. how jurisdictions can adopt their AML when it comes to things like um, beneficial ownership of companies. However, as we are uh, sitting today, the the FATF plenary is up and running and they're going to be reporting on Friday. It's a shame we're not doing this next week because I suspect, given the problems in Ukraine, that the FATF may well find it that the review that they conducted last year, the consultation, they'll suddenly find a way in which they'll bring public registers as, maybe not um, mandatory, but best practice going forward, and it could affect your FATF rating um, going forward. I don't know, Aki, Nancy, you have any views on this? Because up until now, the global standard was, this is for law enforcement. This is not really for members of the public to just troll information on a you know a sort of, on a discretionary basis. So any, any issues, any thoughts on the FATF position and what we're likely to see? Aki?
1: Um, So I think that the EU and and FATF have a have a really interesting dynamic in the last few years, actually. Um, We and and there's a sort of a push and pull between them. Um, I think the EU is operating um, certainly post 2016 as a kind of a, um, a global leader in a lot of legislative developments. Um, and set, setting a benchmark um, on which, in some areas, FATF does does catch up. Sometimes, and and, and alongside the OECD as well. Um, so sometimes it's 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 the reverse. So, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if 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 the FATF does does get uh, uh, inspired to a degree by by what's going on within the
0: EU. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Nancy, on this?
2: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, um, and I think you know I, I think it's a really positive thing actually the fact that they try to streamline the definition for beneficial ownership. Um, and actually in Jersey our ML law, um, they refer to uh, the FATF position when it comes to beneficial ownership identification, um, so I think from our perspective um, it's, it's quite a positive thing that they're so active in the space.
0: right right. okay well we'll see it will be they should have their recommendations by friday that's their published date for for the plenary so we'll see if they then move to to put beneficial ownership as a public right rather than as a law enforcement private right going forward and obviously that, that bears upon the amount of information that's available on family office ownership for instance now, another topic, which is the opaque offshore structures. Now this is subsumed within the mandatory disclosure rules, which the, uh, the OECD took the lead on uh, some years back now, 2018, I think was the date that they published this stuff. Now, let's ask, and Nancy, from your perspective, um, how does this opaque offshore structure um, sort of uh, disclosure rule work in practice? So we've got a trust here We've got the trust sitting on top of a family office. The trust has got beneficiaries. Let's assume that these beneficiaries are named in, the, in a deed so they're not a class. We've got a law and we've got power holder or a protector. So these are the bona fide um, sort of um, beneficial owners or controlling persons. So what is the opaque offshore structure provisions looking at if we've already identified the people that are actually going to be the beneficial owners of this? How does it work? What is it trying to get at? Yeah. So,
2: um... So we've got a draft law in place, although it hasn't come into effect yet. Um, and there's sort of two prongs to this. We've got the CRS avoidance element, so where you've got a structure that has the intent of the effect, not the intention, but the effect of avoiding CRS. Um, that would be caught by the new law. Um, mm-hmm. And the second prong is the opaque offshore structure. So in essence, um, if there are arrangements in place, which hide or which has the effect of not revealing the true beneficial owners um, mm-hmm. of the structure, then um, then there's the obligation um, on uh, certain people who are involved in the structure, for example, um, advisors um, and promoters, people who design these structures, yeah. to report um, the, the the structure and the effect yeah. of it um, to the control of taxes in Jersey.
0: So that, could that be where you have a set law that's effectively um, exercising control over the trust, but he actually hasn't got any reserve powers? But it's it's yeah. a working arrangement between everyone that he, he can basically call the shots is that is that the type of thing
2: yeah i i think i think that that is possible um there, there hasn't been much commentary been given in relation to um the interpretation of the law and the law the way it's drafted is very very broad mm. and so i think so much of this sort of legislation comes down to you know what is within the spirit of the law um mm. and so you know where you've got Um, a a really legitimate structure whereby um, the set law purely wants to direct investments, for example. Um, You know, I don't think that is really the intention, that sort of structure is not intended to be caught um, by the new law. Um, but sort of in a more classic case where um, you've got some some nominee arrangements, for example, right. um, whereby you know the true identity of the beneficial owners are masked by the use of nominees. That is sort of the classic case, right. um, which would be caught by the law. But then you know the, the, it's it's like one of these. It's very similar to CRS, you know um i think that as the law comes into effect um there'll be more examples which are on the borderline and you know we'll need then for some for some further guidance uh, from the legislature as to how far the law would go
0: yeah yeah okay in terms of crown dependencies as you mentioned um we've got some draft legislation knocking around i don't know if this is the the last bit that was put together but is it in effect yet or have we got a timeline for this to come into effect in in the the Channel Islands?
2: No, we don't have a timeline for this yet. Um, Yeah, because um, there was some suggestion when the law was first introduced, the draft law was first introduced that it should be coming into effect uh, in the summer of 2022, so this year, but so far we haven't heard anything further. Um, and given, you know, the, the rest of things that's going on it might not um, come into effect until 2023, but so far we don't have a definitive yeah. time timeline.
0: I mean, I, I would think uh, given this whole Ukraine thing, again, uh, acting as an accelerator, maybe these go slow approaches maybe um, won't be. Uh, I mean, a lot of this slow is actually down to COVID and, and people finding it difficult right. to, to roll out. So there's a practical side to this. But I think I suspect that the. Um, the Ukraine aspect is going to be pushing on this um, going forward. We'll, we'll, we'll see, but uh, certainly from the that, economic... can, I, can I mention a point just on 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 the opaque offshore structures? Yeah, because I was just going to ask you from the British overseas territories right, perspective okay. as well. So I was just going to just before that, I was going to just uh, ask Nancy at Supplemental, how does this work with respect to the economic substance rules? The interaction between. An opaque structure and, the, and, and a, a, a structure that's actually got bona fide substance. Is there any yeah. interaction rules here?
2: Yeah, there is actually. So, in the new law, it does refer to the fact that um, opaque structures. Um, I can't remember the exact wording off the top of mm. my head, but it does refer to structures whereby um, you know they are deemed to be tax resident in the jurisdiction, but their real economic activity. That don't actually take place in that jurisdiction, yeah. um, and so um, yeah, again, I think you know, there the effect is that they're trying to um, to identify structures whereby um, they're trying to mask their um, both beneficial ownership and yeah. where the real activities actually take place.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think the, the, the broad approach is that if you've gone, if you've passed the economic substance test, then you're not a passive offshore vehicle, right? But, it, but the economic substance doesn't apply to a trust. So you're still stuck with the trust being dealt with as, as if it were a sort of strict liability. So if you have this is the lesson for everyone out there. If you've got a trust and you're you're not reserving sort of sufficient powers and people are de facto exercising control of it. This is going to be a candidate for a, a disclosure under this opaque offshore structure regime going forward. So you want to actually get everything squared away and have bona fide beneficial owners lined up to avoid getting into this sort of morass going forward. Okay, Aki, from the British Overseas Territories, BVI, Cayman, et cetera, um, any likelihood that we'll see mandatory disclosure and opaque offshore structures being introduced, particularly in light of this, I keep hacking on about this stuff about Ukraine, but given that we we are in where we are and they look as though a lot of legislation be pushed through quickly in the UK, particularly on this. um, Any views on this? So I think
1: um, from from a from an OT from a British Overseas Territories perspective, we we and certainly with, with BVI in focus, we, we haven't really seen any um, any any attention yet paid to um, MDR rules. Um, but you know, again, obviously that that is a that is part of the the BEPS framework. So right. so maybe may you know uh, in, in in years to come that that will that will materialise. Um, and, and we'll be discussing that in more detail as we are with with, with the UBA registers. Um, I think just what we are seeing on the MDR rules is there seems to be um, two two models that are out there. There's the there's the FATF uh, style OECD mandated international version of MDR rules, which I think yeah. Anthony was just effectively giving us a, a very good description of in Jersey. In, in yeah. So you, Jack, Zach. Um, and then and then um, we, we have the eu version which is you know, all known as dac6 yeah. um, what i mean the experience on the eu side seems to be that um, the the um, a lot of the provisions look extremely broad on paper yeah. but often when you try and apply them in practice they are they are there to target specific products and specific techniques that are used in in industries by by you know, tax practitioners and and um, and okay. those sorts. Um, so 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 I think I think you know what we really need to, to to pay attention to is is how how is this going to be implemented in practice and and the key for that is looking at the guidance notes that are eventually issued. Yeah, because they say so much more than. Um, than the legislation, um, yeah. and you can get completely lost if you just read yeah. the yeah. legislation.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that comes up in all of that legislation is the retroactive effect of this, where they, I mean, obviously, European Union didn't go for the full retroactive period, which is back to 2014, which is the OECD standard. I think um, channel liners might be adopting that approach of going back as far as 2014, but if we see this being rolled out as a as a, a go fast. Sort of initiative across both British Overseas Territories and then into financial centers uh, into Asia, Hong Kong and Singapore, then it's important for, for everyone, practitioners on the call, that they realize that the retroactive effect means that things that you're doing now could potentially be uh, disclosable going forward, not just on mandatory scope, but also on opaque structures. So that's that's the that's the part of this modern approach of trying to make things effective back in the past I mean 2014 no one had CRS for instance so um, go figure why it should be that far back so another one just for everyone watching another one that could be developed quite quickly in light of what's going on with Ukraine or it might not we'll have to see Uh, it might just be something that's rolled out over territories that the UK has at some level of control and not internationally okay so just running down to the final couple of the, the the substance sort of um assessment of the family office now we're looking at economic substance rules and this comes from a different angle this comes from the forum from sort of harmful tax practices and BEPS action 5. so Aki from your perspective how does this thing work how does economic substance work for for members on the call who who are not familiar with the rules and what they're trying to achieve
1: so economic substance um wasn't really designed economic substance rules in BEPS um weren't really designed with family offices and and, and private wealth management um, industries in mind. So they kind of cut across the industry in, in a slightly odd way that often doesn't you know when you're trying to explain to clients they they often expect to be caught and then when you say oh no nothing's caught they you know, they say oh well, that's that's a surprise as if, if as if they're meant to be targeted mm-hmm. um and that kind of I think cuts back to the to, to the stuff you're saying on Ukraine I mean broad, broadly speaking you've got you've got a bunch of um, relevant activities so if you fall within the scope of the relevant activities then um, you notionally need to put economic substance in place in the typically in the jurisdiction of domicile of the undertaking involved, whether that's you know typically that'll be a company. So mm-hmm. so meaning you need to have from a BVI perspective real substance in in, in the BVI. Now of course there yeah. are differing levels of substance. Some are purely notional. So mm-hmm. again when we're talking about relevant activity of uh, being a pure equity holding entity yeah. um, in in most cases or many or most cases it, it may simply be that having arrangements with a registered agent at very similar to what what people have at the moment or prior to the economic substance rules would yeah. be sufficient um in other cases it means uh, for example if there's anything to do with intellectual property um then then it you know it, it can mean actually having a, a real uh center of of of, of r d development in in the in the relevant territory so right. so it really it, it does does depend Right. Um, so, so yeah. So, just looking at your slide, there, so pure equity holding company. What's that? Um, so, so that's a that's a that's a company that um, only holds equitable interests and um, receives uh, dividends and capital returns uh, essentially. So, um, so 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 where a pure equity holding company is um, quote unquote passively managed. Uh, then uh, um uh, you're predicting what i'm going to say there, Zach. Yeah. um uh, yeah. then then um very limited um substance is required so so could a paper-based style substance which is you know you've got your registered agent and you've got you've got all the the, the company secretarial stuff in place as, it, as it should be under under regulations yeah. where you have actively uh, managed uh, companies uh then uh, those uh, where there's a, where there's a high turnover within the company of, of underlying assets that are yeah. being actively managed um yeah. then then the rules point to a um a, a, a stricter uh, requirement on on substance they're silent on precisely what that is yeah um, so so there isn't a one size fits all um and you know it can be from for example appointing a director um in in the jurisdiction to to possibly more than that but again i think what we're what we're generally seeing in, in the structures affecting family offices is that the the holding companies when we look at the detail of them end up being fairly passive and they tend to be managed by someone else um so so they're not necessarily uh, themselves uh, being um considered um, actively right. uh, actually managed. so for example in in, in you know in, in the chart here we have a singaporean uh, company, which is a manager uh, providing um, um, the active uh, management in, in, in the structure.
0: Yeah, because I think that is so that's the point, isn't it? So, if you've got within the fund company a great deal of activity going on, so the fund company is effectively trading quite heavily in financial assets, and these are uh, uh, dipping in and out, I suppose, of pure equity holding from time to time. That legislation is not, doesn't seem to be that sophisticated to do a day count on when you're equity and when you're not. So let's assume it just switches on and off all the time. Um, if you're actively doing that, then that would mean that you would have to look quite carefully at: Are you satisfying the substance requirements? Do you have adequate substance in the BVI, for instance? If we're using that example, I think the warning for everyone watching is this: If you've got a Singapore single-family office with a BVI company what used to be a sort of 13x, I think it's a 13o now, or whatever they renamed it. If it's actively managed, then you need to get this looked at and you need to, you know, ask people like Aki, for instance, what do they think is the right approach to going along with this? Because the effect is if you fail the substance test, there's fines, but also there's this um, rather sneaky, sort of spontaneous disclosure of information to the, to the residency of controlling persons presumably that's your beneficiary set law and protectors so there's a disclosure that you are in some way connected with a failed company a failed substance company is that correct
1: that that's that's correct exactly
4: yeah.
0: right right okay I, in terms of the peer review process there's two levels that the forum of harmful tax practices do that they do a legal peer review and then they do a, a effectively a practical implementation peer review do we have an idea of the status of that going forward how how are we I know that we've had co, you know sort of covid has basically stopped a lot of these things happening or at least pushed them back but is it actively being reviewed the practical implementation of these um, these regulations in BDI came and etc
1: well, in terms of the peer review process, um, I, I'm not sure when that's scheduled for. Um, no, no doubt, it will happen at some point in, in, in the future. What we are generally seeing on the ground is that there is real enforcement of these rules in, yeah. in, in the BVI. Um, I think I think there's there's sometimes a tendency to think of um, the you know, places like the BVI as, as having lax um, governance, but, yeah. but actually the the opposite is true, um, and the authorities. In, in the uk overseas territories work incredibly um well to to enforce uh, these rules because they they, right. they want to be um in in the lead of of, of these regulatory initiatives so so we, we are seeing we are seeing reinforcement um and uh and investigations and those yeah. sorts of things so i fully agree it's 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 critically important that all the listeners and um stakeholders in family office structures ensure that they're structures are compliant yeah. uh, because in, in principle they they can take they, they can take steps to make them compliant um, mm. but um it, it's important to actually do it
0: right right okay and it doesn't apply to trusts right so there's no there's no and there's nothing being said about making it expand economic substance to trusts
1: that's it doesn't right. apply to trusts. that's right okay um it doesn't right. apply to trust though.
0: No. okay right on the uh, from the crs perspective quite quickly on this standard reporting of a family office basically a fund company is going to be a managed investment entity that will uh, effectively report um, the controlling persons the family trust if, as long as it receives some level of income will also generally be within the investment entity criteria The unfortunate aspect is because we habitually put together family offices with a holding company that holding company tends to be a passive NFE or a passive non-financial entity and therefore you end up with double reporting going on on structures like this um, going forward some structures will be different where they don't have a hold code but if you've got the classical one you've probably got double reporting at the trust level as well as the family um, the sort of fund company level and that tends to be the standard reporting format there's only two things I'll mention it comes to CRS and family offices that want the listeners to be aware of the first thing is where we have a stacked family office and a stacked one is where the fund management company holds the fund company now ostensibly this could give rise to zero reporting uh, and the reason why is you've got an interaction of two financial institutions the fund manager and the fund company and the fund manager doesn't have financial accounts as a matter of CRS law so that could end up with a a non-reporting scenario however it does, if it's put together this way, deliberately designing it to avoid the CRS, then you've got uh, an anti-avoidance provision within the CRS that can be triggered by this. If you want to look at this further, if you've got a a client with a stack structure, you might want to look at the latest OECD FAQ. I've given you the reference there that will talk about what to do with structures like this, but you can have this stack scenario. And I remember when uh, initially this was being rolled out in Singapore, I think some of the providers Um, We're saying that they can find a way to have nil reporting, and there we are. So I think this is what they were trying to to get at. That would be an anti-avoidance trigger for the CRS. So that's a stacked family office. Enveloped family office is really where the holding company is sat alongside a whole bunch of the, the clients trading or family businesses. This is quite prevalent in the market space in Southeast Asia, where a lot of the families are beginning the process of decanting their wealth from business wealth to private sort of um, private wealth and private wealth management. But the family office, the holdco tends to sit alongside or holds effectively the trade codes that can give rise um, to a deemed active NFE status of that holdco, which mean the reporting trail on this structure is affected. It wouldn't be a straight look through reporting from the fund company. So it's important if you have an enveloped family office, one that's surrounded with trading companies and the family office is just one of a a line, that it could be that your holding company is also an active NFE. There's the particular section of the the CRS that will help you if you think you've got an envelope family office. Okay, now going over to John, um, the obviously the, the, the CRS equivalent in the US is FATCA and we'll just run through, in terms of scope of reporting, if we run the normal Singapore single-family office, we're we'll looking at it from a factor perspective. We've got interested persons. Um, we've got a US account at the bottom, and then we've got potentially US persons as beneficiaries, settlor, protector. A couple of things I wanted to just run through is uh, potential CRS uh, reporting mismatch between the US and 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 the uh, the sort of OECD standard that's been adopted, and then these reciprocal IGAs and how they they've been adopted. Um, going forward from the U.S. perspective. So I wonder if you can say a few remarks on how FATCA will apply to a a single family office where we have these potential variables with U.S. interests.
5: Sure. Thanks, Zach. There are so many acronyms that we all deal with. Many of them can be confusing. This one is very helpful. So if you're ever dealing with FATCA and you got to get your head around it, start with the acronym because it helps you. Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. It's, it's bringing Americans into compliance the same way that it works internally in the U.S. In the U.S., when you go work for a job or an employer or you have an investment account, a set of data is sent to the IRS to double check you. You're not on the honor system when it gets reported. FACA is that same concept taken globally. So we're looking at are there U.S. persons that are going to be treated as account holders or controlling persons? Those tend to align in definitions. There's some slight differences, but they're really the opposite sides of the coin, whether you have an FI or an NFFE. So here, you know, looking at, do we have US person beneficiaries? Do we have a US person settler? Do we have a US person protector? But right at the start, we're gonna look at mismatches. So protectors, not automatically in as controlling persons typically in the US. It depends on what type of powers they hold. That's generally a general power of appointment that creates U.S. estate tax exposure, but it's not an absolute. Whereas under CRS, you have this kind of logical, illogical conclusion. Uh, protectors are caught under ultimate effective control, regardless of whether they have any effective control. Yeah. So so that's so full stop protectors in under CRS, not necessarily under FATCA. Similarly with settlors. The U.S. has a grantor regime when it comes to describing the person who's responsible from a tax perspective at the the top of a trust. But the IGA's were a compromise. The IGA's, unlike the Treasury regulations, don't make the foreign institutions learn the grantor trust rules. They use the word settlor, the person who settled the assets in. This can create a mismatch internally in the U.S., meaning someone can settle a trust but not be treated as the grantor. They probably shouldn't be reported because they don't have any tax liabilities, but they will be still under FATCA if it's under an IGA. But then under CRS, not concerned at all about who's tax responsible. It's just the settler, full stop. All right, all right. So there are a little bit of mismatch there. And then the reciprocal IGA is just the lip service that the U.S. pays to its non-participation in CRS. So they did not sign up to the common reporting standard, but they will loudly tell everyone that's because every IGA can be reciprocal if a country wants it to be. Very few, if any, are, and the data that is reciprocated is not one-for-one data to what's being sent to the US. Right,
0: Right, okay. Now, I'm looking at from U.S. perspective of corporate transparency regulations. So is this going to be public and when can we expect the U.S. um, sort of corporate registers to get going?
5: Yeah, not currently envisioned to be public. Uh, That's not to say there may not be pressure uh, to do that in the future. But right now, nothing that's been proposed or implemented um, calls for a public register. Uh, we're in the early stages. There are expected to be three rounds of regulatory guidance or rule drafts released. Only one of those three have been released slightly on maybe a little behind schedule. So the current thought is that that's intended to go live at the beginning of 2023. But uh, with the lack of development in those three rounds uh, of rule releases, I think it's uh, quite likely that we'll miss that deadline. It'll be further into 2023 or or 2024 or beyond before we actually get, get that.
0: You don't think the, um, the the sort of what Biden said today about uh, going after the oligarchs, et cetera, you don't think that will be a push to get some of this stuff through?
5: I don't think so. I believe that um, from a request an investigatory perspective, that data can be had already, so the government wouldn't be relying upon this necessarily. We're talking more middle to low-hanging fruit, not top dogs, um, that that this is going to suss out um, and perhaps uh, protect the U.S.'s uh, reputation, which is not really under huge stress at this moment. The, 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 The latest Paradise Papers release showed that there wasn't a huge amount of anti-South Dakota sentiment. It kind of got lost in the news cycle amongst other uh, right, right. And then U.S. real
0: estate. So we want the, the family office getting involved in holding real estate. What's the what's the reporting data trail
5: from that? Yeah, th- this is a big point of contention in the U.S. recently. It follows on, I guess, conceptually, you can say it follows on from the FIRPTA regime, Foreign Investment in Real Property Tax Act. This is the Uh, capital gains equivalent that the U.S. um, kind of reinstituted for non-U.S. persons back in the late 80s, early 90s. So um, there's been a big emphasis in sussing out foreign ownership of U.S. real estate. So over the course of the last three to five years, there are kind of little incremental changes in the types of forms that have to be filed to the IRS to disclose foreign ownership of companies that are typically used to hold real estate. Yeah. Um, and also uh, you know, the, the ownership of the real estate in those perp to transactions, there's more press to disclose certain identifying information about the foreign owners that are involved in those transactions. It, it's quite ironic. It, the US is developing in a way that's the opposite of the rest of the world. The rest of the world seems to be implementing CRS going hard after bankable, and some private equity style illiquid assets, but not real estate. And so outside the U.S., under the CRS regime, real estate seems to be um, a kind of a privacy regime. Stick money into real estate, it it isn't necessarily going to be disclosed as part of CRS. The U.S. is heading in the opposite direction. Not a lot of urgency to get bankable assets and other financial instruments disclosed in the U.S., uh, primarily life insurance. But at the same time, they're making a big push to make sure that no one is parking foreign assets into U.S. real estate without um, uh, disclosures being made in that regard. So it's right. interesting to see the two regimes that that were kind of gave birth to one another heading in separate directions.
0: Yeah, yeah, agreed. It's ironic also, because I think what we're seeing from the, the U.K. perspective is this registration of overseas entities had been languishing around. This is the one that, that targets overseas companies holding U.K. land. Uh, that's now being fast tracked as a result of Ukraine. Scope of disclosure is that if you have a foreign company like a BVI holding a UK land, and it can be retroactive back 20 years in terms of the purchase dates, um, that company will have to register as if it were a UK company, and the beneficial ownership register would be publicly available in the usual way. That implementation is looking as though it wants to be March of this year. And this is something I said, we've been languishing around for years without any. Um, uh, sort of parliamentary time being made available to get this through so we're seeing it in the context of maybe not full fledged beneficial ownership registers of land, but we're seeing if it's attached to a company or attached to a trust, then you're getting to see it um, uh, sort of manifest that way. Okay, now I kept this in the slides I won't go through it, this is for when we um, when we send around the slides, these are just a summary of all the various initiatives and who they impact and where the data goes and who can see it. Finally, going on to the wealth planning implications of all of this stuff that we've been talking about. And I just want to invite Steve and Andrew to have a, have a canter through of the, the industry implications, particularly industry awareness, your, your wealth planners, your relationship managers, and, and everybody involved in the private wealth industry, client awareness of all of this what's the best practice guidance going forward? And I'd emphasize that what we're talking about here are families that are fully tax and regulatory compliant. If they're not compliant, then we're not, this is a completely different discussion for them. And we're not probably not interested to help them in any event. So this is really bona fide families who are fully compliant. What's the best practice guidance for them going forward? And then how is this gonna shape for the entire industry going forward, given that we've got so many legacy structures spread all over the world and having all of these initiatives hitting at what would appear to be different speeds going forward. So Steve, I'd invite you just to to um to give us your remarks on this. Um, sure. Actually, Andrew, do, do you want to kick off and then I'll I'll add?
3: Okay.
6: Um yeah, um thanks Zach. Um, yeah so I, I guess the key things are um you know from an industry perspective you know it, it's very important for you know wealth planners, RMs, etc, for us to to make sure that we're very close to, you know, the topic itself and make sure that we're properly educated along there. Um, I think generally, as far as the, you know, um, our conversations are probably going at the moment, um, we're probably not going into, you know, a huge amount of detail um, as an industry. Um, you know, we're obviously, you know, being compliant and making sure that, you know, everything is is properly being um, filed when we're looking after our structures, but, um, you know, when we're, you know, having those discussions with clients at an early stage um, as well as an ongoing basis I think it's very important that we, we're probably more proactive and looking into the future when we're having those discussions about how things are likely to change in the future um, and and having those conversations up front is, is very important um, obviously I think for a client perspective um, you know and we're, we're talking about you know as you've discussed you know compliance structures compliant clients you know they they're, they're generally you know they they're interested. They want to know how their their families, how their structures are going to be affected, and obviously you know it's part of our our role as service providers, as wealth planners, etc. You know to make sure that we give them the right level of information. When it comes down to you know best practice, I guess we're looking at going forward. You know potentially entering into this position where we have a a two-speed you know, um, arrangement because there's lack of, you know, a global standard at the moment. So, yeah. you know, different jurisdictions will will have, um, you know, um, implement things in different ways and therefore, you know, how is that going to affect, you know, choice of, of jurisdictions for, for clients? I think that that's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. Mm. Um, Steve, is there anything you want to add on at the moment?
3: Sure. I, I think uh, you referred to or there's been several references, obviously, to to clients. And I think if I think back in the last 10, 15 uh, longer uh, years and the journey that clients have been through uh, and the industry has been through and therefore clients have been through, um, first of all, being compliant isn't a choice anymore. I mean, it's it's inevitable. It's a question of how to be compliant whilst trying to preserve your wealth and get as much privacy as, as one can legitimately get. Um, I mean, you think of things like uh, source of funds, uh, KYC, all these things have evolved over the years and, and it's normal and other things that are normal now are things like CRS and FATCA we talked about. Clients get it, they know it, they accept it um, and they're also prepared to provide their own information, which is you know, inherently confidential to reputable tax um, authorities and regulators. So this has been happening right? and it is happening. So that evolution, I think, you know, we we kind of take it for granted sometimes. But when you think back, um, the world has changed significantly. But I think looking forward, and I think uh, Zach, you alluded to in and Andrew as well, uh, looking forward, I think the big um, the next couple of years in particular, the big point will be on public registries. It's yeah. one thing to provide your information to regulators or regulated pr- trustees like us and, and others. That's that's one thing, but to be in the public domain. Is 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 clearly another matter, which seems to go against other data privacy yeah. GDPR and, and other things yeah. like that. Right? Yeah. So 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 the next few years will be very interesting on that. And and uh you know, we talked about the crown dependencies and and elsewhere, um, where there isn't a final, final view yet, so you know, mm-hmm. as to what they will do. So that brings me to uh, I think the jurisdictional point andrew was making around what what will happen here. Um I think families and their advisors will consider different jurisdictions uh, based on on, uh, public or uh, non-public registries. And I think the the only other comment I'll make is, I think we sometimes forget in our industry, I mean, we're dealing with all these things and as our clients are and and their advisors, but I think what what often gets forgotten is how important we are. This is not necessarily a bad thing, if I could put it that way. Mm -hmm. In a way, we are the checks and balances for the world in reducing money laundering and tax evasion, uh, et cetera, mm. through the type of things we're talking about. I think that sometimes gets lost um, uh, with, even in our industry and and, and with some clients. And uh, I find myself having to remind folks uh, mm. of the good that we do uh, in that context as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Aki, what do you what do you make of the, the prospect of BDI companies becoming onshore companies in terms of their tax residency status, so they, they start to migrate off into a midshore Context and start taking on a rather hybrid approach. Do you think that that's going to be the future?
1: Well, it's certainly a possibility, possibility, and, and and there is a framework within the economic substance rules that that allows for that. So I think um, it, it, it's it's a really interesting development actually. Um, and where where a BVI company is tax resident in another jurisdiction and can evidence that, uh, then it, it essentially falls outside of scope of the. Uh, economic substance uh, rules in in the BVI. So I think you know we, we we're generally seeing that develop. Yeah. Obviously, it requires close cooperation between the the onshore slash midshore jurisdiction and uh, and and the BVI or the other relevant OTs. Yeah. Um, so 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 yes, so I think I think that's certainly a possibility.
0: Right, right. Nancy and and, and John, anything from you on on how this is all going to shape? Any any final comments on this particular point, which is wrapping up the, the uh, sort, of, sort of the legalistic bits of this talk.
5: I would just add that I think, um, you know, there's been a shift amongst financial institutions, both trustees and banks, the end of banking secrecy and a, an emphasis on multi jurisdictional regulatory compliance. In some ways, private attorneys are the last vestige of privacy attorney client privilege still exists. In many jurisdictions, we can be a relief to both clients and to providers to have conversations that might not be appropriate um, for for other. And then also, I just think that the privacy stuff is is coming regardless. So folks that remain buried in their head in the sand are missing out on the the best opportunities. When we look back at the U.S. voluntary disclosure regime, those Americans who came forward in 2009, 2010, 2011 did far better economically and criminal penalty wise than those that are just now getting their ducks in a row and coming forward. Uh, same globally, when you look at the banking industry, banks that went through deferred prosecution agreements and resolved their troubles back in the early 2010s are, are doing far better and got a, a jump start in cleaning out their book of business. So privacy is coming and, and it's not about avoiding it. It's about finding the most efficient structuring that, that accommodates it.
0: Right. Right. Okay, right. So we'll move on to the the final segment, which is all around cybersecurity in the context of uh, the the single family office. And I think this is very important because we're seeing family offices being developed on the fly sort of DIY approach to how families are managing the sort of infrastructure, the physical infrastructure aspects of the family office. And I wanted to have a chat around the cybersecurity because this sits quite squarely with some of what's happening on the transparency initiatives that we've been talking about earlier so some of the areas that we discussed: level of risk in terms of the cybersecurity uh, risk going forward the types of risk that families are likely to experience specific family office risk that we can we can mention and then what's the best mitigating strategies that families can can adopt given that in many cases they're completely without any level of guidance on how to handle these things so if i just invite paul if you can just give us some some sort of high level stuff on how the risk is shaping and what what's going on in the marketplace because i think for all of us on this call and for the viewers and everybody else i think we have no real idea at all about how this thing looks yeah thanks thanks
4: zach and a, a real pleasure to be here and i'll try and keep this one high level as you mentioned um uh, because uh, let's face it beneficial ownership of take offshore structures went right over my head I'm afraid, so I'll try not to go uh, over everybody's head on, there, on this call from a technical point of view. But yeah, look, thanks for this. Uh, thanks for inviting me along here today. Just a little bit quickly about me. I'm former Hong Kong police, uh, 22 years running cyber crime investigations, dealing with frauds, cyber, etc., And uh, also a number of years with JP Morgan running their global cyber investigation team. So I've got a long history of working in this space. Um, but what we're seeing, right? So I guess this at the beginning of every year, what are the risks, what are the levels of risks and the types of risks that we are seeing and that we're forecasting for the year ahead. And I can tell you right now, one of the key points I've been making a lot of the, these discussions is that the attackers are shifting their focus towards high wealth individuals right? because they're after the money, right? And, yeah. and um, they're recognizing that what's happening is that, you know, firms are getting more savvy, bigger firms. I mean, are getting more savvy, they're building stronger defenses. So of course they're looking for, uh, I'd say it, but weaker targets, targets that still can, uh, they can monetize. Right. but don't have the security levels commensurate with those uh, bigger firms. So let me talk about the four main risks that, or the four main uh, threats that we're seeing currently. Um, so the big one, no surprise to everybody, probably is ransomware. And i tell you what, I'll circle back to that. Although it's the biggest one, I'll come back to that at the end. But the other three are really email compromise. So email compromise continues to be rampant. We saw this peak at around 2017 and then dip considerably. But this year, uh, sorry, towards the end of last year and early this year, it's really uh, on the rise again. And what this facilitates is is a number of things. If somebody breaks into your email, Mm -hmm. it allows them to impersonate you, to commit fraud in your name. And hence the reputational damage. It may not be directly lost to you, but it's your connections, your clients, your contacts that are getting hit in your name. With investment opportunities or with you know with other kinds of scam. Yeah. And that's definitely on the rise. Um so protecting the email is critical. And you also think about the wealth of personal data that you, con- you have in your inboxes, in your mailboxes, et cetera. If some threat actor or some bad actor gets into those mailboxes, um, the damage is immense. Right. And they are starting to monetize this through extortion, through blackmailing you and and and, and essentially you know threatening you with exposure unless you pay up a certain amount usually in crypto so the email compromise huge that's the second one uh, the third one is, is cyber extortion and scams I, I touched on that sort of briefly with the email compromise but it's broader than that we're seeing high wealth individuals constantly targeted uh, uh family offices etc with with um uh with various types of scams and they're clever it's getting harder and harder to detect real scams from, uh, uh, sorry, real uh, uh, emails from from these scams. Uh, I mean, I, I just had an email right now, just as I was talking to you guys from uh, um, from a, a connection in Hong Kong who um, was just seeing an email from the Hong Kong government off the back of the latest outbreak in Hong Kong and is spoofing very, very effectively the Hong Kong government with email uh, and it's all a big scam and it takes them to a malicious site, et cetera. But because of the fear currently prevalent in Hong Kong, people are clicking on these links without really stopping to think because they're panicking over what the situation is so the criminals are very good about leveraging ongoing political situations uh, be it elections be it ukraine situation be it the covid situation it's getting right, harder yeah. and harder to detect so you need robust controls in place to protect right, right, yourselves yeah. from yourself if you know right, what i mean right. we're, we're all human we we can all click on these things we can all get uh, pulled into these things so uh, the best protection is, is to have some kind of technical controls that can identify the scams versus the real ones and hopefully protect you before you get hit so that's the the third one we're seeing a scam oh sorry we're also seeing a lot of romance scams as well I hate to say it but you know um uh, mostly male I'm afraid but uh, who gets um pulled into um uh, uh how do we say dalliances with uh, with uh, with um female connections online and it turns out that they're Actually, recording everything that goes on and yeah. then sorting afterwards. And yeah. uh, uh, this is because it's embarrassing. You don't hear much about it in the public eye, but I get a considerable number of individuals coming to me, very senior often, individuals coming to me that are being extorted this way. Or it may even be um, something that's not real, actually, but they're they're very convincing and they are, you know, they're they're extorting or, or trying to threaten you with extortion based on. Um, uh, you know, um, stuff that's not exactly made up, but uh, enhanced, shall we say? Right. Uh, um, right. So that's the third one, and, and the fourth one is crypto. So obviously a hot topic at the moment, and yes. we're seeing. And the, the crims are looking for. So when they're doing the hacks, when they're doing their scans, they are looking for wallets or any kind of right. uh, information about crypto on right. the target systems, and right. they're getting very good. A lot of this malware is now just specifically looking for wallets. Or right. any information about transactions in the crypto world. Right. Uh, right. Again, once crypto's been moved, it's hard to hard to reel that back. We we yeah. do a lot of investigations yeah. around yeah.
0: that. Yeah. So, so so listening to you, the specific risks, I suppose, is the fact that your average family office, the, the the family be wandering around with a with a with an iPhone that has both their family office traffic as well as their personal traffic running on the same, probably the same emails. Or at least the, everything's being dealt with on one device in a yep. sort of semi-casual way because this is nothing more than a personal investment company with whistles. So that is that going to be the problem? Is the fact that it's all very casual and you're just acting as though it's a sort of online account?
4: Uh, very much so, Jack. You know, and we're seeing that uh, time and again. And and the mixing of personal and 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 the business side is is quite prevalent, and that is a recipe for disaster, I'm afraid. Uh, right. And also, you know, we've seen it you know, given another example, we had a major incident that we had to investigate from a a, a very senior board member of a bank. Uh, I'm not going to name them for obvious reasons, but that individual served on multiple boards and yet was just using one computer for convenience to access information from each of those boards from different institutions. And hence, who looks after the security? Because bank A could not do it because then they would possibly see information about uh, organization B. Right, 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 on the board right, so if anybody out there just serve on multiple boards this is a big issue who yeah. guides you on the security who guides and strengthens and also segments should you be carrying individual devices it's troublesome right nobody wants yeah, to get yeah. multiple devices but yeah. there are ways of segmenting and there are ways of uh, of if you like firewalling off the personal yeah. and the yeah. work and again we, we do provide that kind of guidance uh, but we see it time and again that individuals don't do that just for convenience and
0: yeah. Right, it's right. Definitely. In, in terms of these beneficial ownership registers and the, the information that they're likely to give out in terms of beneficiaries of trusts and set laws of trusts and shareholders, etc. Obviously, for high net worth individuals, some of them will be very prominent. They'll be featured in Forbes and Fortune magazine, etc., and the rich list. Yeah. But actually, it's the second and third generation that don't generally surface. You don't really see them much in public they're they're quite wealthy in their own right but they're overshadowed by the head of the family who's quite public do you reckon that what's going on is that as the uh, sort of criminal elements re sort of um focus to looking at high net worth that it's really the second gen etc that are going to be the targets of their their attention because they're probably not going to be in any way protected
4: very good point uh very good point because um, the criminals uh, organized crime is, as the name suggests, becoming very organized. They do their research. Yeah. They, again, if if, it, if the money's drying up from sort of more traditional targets, the big firms, then they are going to do their research on how. And of course, they're going to find out who the, uh, the relatives are, the younger ones, etc. They'll go after them and they'll start scanning. They'll start to do all the uh, mapping out. Of everything, right. Looking for ways to target, and as I mentioned, the, the first threat I mentioned ransomware. um Well, that's now coming with data exfiltration. So, what the bad guys are doing now, if they they'll try and encrypt. So, ransomware means you basically lock up the data, so it becomes un- inaccessible until yeah. you pay to get a key to unlock the data. Right? right. It, um If that doesn't work, and you're not paying because you've got backups, say for example, what they're doing whilst they're uh, before they lock up the data, they're actually stealing data. They're taking away you know your records your spreadsheet right. your databases whatever it might be yeah. and then they'll threaten to expose it unless you pay them so it's a right double right
0: yeah, of yeah i can and imagine right i can imagine clients from from politically sensitive jurisdictions that's a nightmare scenario for them to have the prospect of that data leak going on yeah. okay in terms of i don't know if jazz wants to contribute in terms of the risk mitigation strategy. So what should we be doing? What's the advice that we should be giving, given that actually in the market space, I haven't seen any other than a few multifamily offices that that are actually taking this seriously with clients. So what's the sort of best advice for for clients going forward? Do they have a private server like uh, Hillary Clinton, for instance, or how do they do this?
7: (laughs) Thanks, Zach. Um, Look, family offices are not immune from a cyber attack. Uh, Like any individual, a family office can be attacked and you need to take steps to protect against that. It's of course going to be an increasing target given the significant value of wealth of assets under management, right? Yeah. It, it makes it worthwhile. Why target 50 individuals when you can go for your whale? Okay, yeah. Yeah. That, that's the fact of, of life in terms of the people who are profiling individuals at the moment. Right. Right. So if you look then in terms of you know the type of attacks you get attacks from the usual cyber criminals but also of course as we've seen in paradise papers and panama papers you've got journalists activists investigators tax authorities all wanting to know the confidential banking arrangements of the wealthy right and and that it's it's not just a privacy issue it's a brand issue it's it's undermining its attempts to undermine the personal brand of individuals who have wealth Yeah, yeah. And that's a key concern. So they really do need to look carefully at how to protect, right? Yes. So if you look at social media as an example, lifestyle cues in social media are often used by profilers for attacks. Right, right. So they look at what you're doing on Facebook and a number of other social media sites and use that to basically create a way to, to facilitate a scam. Right. OK, the problem is a number of individuals, you mentioned the second and third generations, but of course, you know, you've got the the, the elder statesmen as public uh, statements of overt of philanthropy. That adds to risk because it doesn't take much to work out how many children somebody's got. Um, generally, people will know because they've gone to events together and so forth. Yeah. And cyber thieves, of course, profile them as potential victims. One of the things which I think is often forgotten, you got individual risk, you mm. will have family office risk, mm. but the other risk which I think is often overlooked is the professional advisor risk and the more complicated your group of advisors are, mm. and particularly with the work from home regime that we've seen over the period of the COVID pandemic, I think it's vital that people realize that you're only as good as the weakest link in that chain. Yeah, yeah. Because you yeah. could take all the protections you like in terms of an individual, but then find that you've actually not not protected at all because one of your advisors has lost his phone. Yeah, yeah. And all the data's on there, right? Yeah. So, of course, the key thing here is high net worth individuals have the ability to pay. Again, there's no point in actually blackmailing, extorting money from somebody who hasn't got the ability to pay. Yeah. And one of the things we've seen is over a period of time is luxury locations being targeted for wireless spoofing. Mm. So hackers are targeting luxury hotels as an example, five-star hotel lobbies and airport lounges using public or open wireless networks. And this is the key for me in terms of today, for me giving pointers for you guys, is to deal with that issue because mm. securing your wi-fi home or office it doesn't matter on one level because you know a lot of these family offices are very unsophisticated systems in terms of their operation and indeed their security physical security of their offices yeah um so, first of all, you need to make sure that the default name of your home Wi-Fi doesn't effectively demonstrate which brand of router you're using. Yeah. It's like advertising, come and get me. I've got, you know, this has got a fault we all know and a good hacker can get through that. Yeah. Um, and secondly, you've got to make sure you've got a strong password and, yeah. not, and not your grandmother's surname, or you know, maiden name yeah. and all that type of stuff. Proper
0: passwords. So I think Jez, it's it's a question of two things because if we're looking from the from the, the sort of family officers perspective, yeah, they need to have protocols that actually tell them this is how you handle this risk. So they need to have some something that they can follow. And then on the second side, I think is from what you're saying, we actually need to have some solution, either software or hardware, to try and keep these, these things under control. So it's protocols, what you need to Indeed. do, and then separately. Hardware and, and effective um you know protective software. That, that's basically what's missing at the moment, where they're running it just like they're running their own private affairs. Of course, that, but if you actually put
7: levels of protection in, for an example, right. if you enable network encryption, okay, most 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 um routers will allow you to do that, okay, for the Wi-Fi. You disable remote access, right? You you create a separate guest Wi-Fi. Why on earth would you share the Wi-Fi password? Because you're effectively sharing with an individual any bad actor. So a bad actor could come into the office, have a chat, and say, "Oh, by the way, uh, do you have your password?" Uh, And you give it to them, and all their intention was to get the password from that meeting, and then they use it to to commit all sorts of wrongdoings. Right? Right. And simple things like turning off the Wi-Fi when mm. you're not using it, right, and making sure the router's software is up to date. Mm, These yeah. are all examples, but the, but the main one, just for you and everyone else on this call, if you're not familiar with it, use a virtual personal network VPN to mm. a- access your network. People keep on going to coffee shops and logging on, and people don't realise that that data can be compromised in short order, Mm. And that's why, as I say, the uh, hotel lobbies and the airport uh, lounges are being targeted by high-end criminals. You know, you want to be in the first-class lounge at Singapore Airlines, right? And, you know, and and then see who's sitting around and maybe they know who's sitting around. Yeah, yeah. Those are are, are key issues for me in terms of of dealing with practical things connected
0: with Wi-Fi. Very good. Okay, I think we leave it there. Um, just could to could I just add one point? Just Sure, point point. please it, go ahead.
4: Yeah, on, on that one. It, it's, um, most uh, family offices, they'll have an IT provider who helps them off and set up, etc. Unfortunately, these providers, security is a very different skill set yeah. to yeah. IT infrastructure, etc. Just yes. bear that in mind when you have them because, uh, you know, it, 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 but this is a huge topic we could go on, you know, as Yeah, we, uh, well, probably, I mean, just,
0: look at, just looking at Steve, I, I think from, from you guys are busy in Singapore creating family offices. I mean, this sounds like a good a good team up that you guys could have in terms of the, f- the physical infrastructure for these clients and not just the legal infrastructure from when they're putting these things together. Might well be a uh, a, d- a decent sort of synergy there. Right. A couple of questions. We'll just deal with them quite quickly before we, um, we log off. Um, how to create economic substance for pure equity companies such as a uh, personal investment company in the BBI? It's first question. So, Aki, how to create economic substance? I think the, the answer you've given is it's variable, it's it's not one size fits all. But, but how, how to answer that one?
1: Excuse me. absolutely. Um so 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 basically uh, it, it it very much isn't one size fits all. Um and if we, I mean, we and and the sort of the anecdotal evidence is as far as family offices go um is that um excuse me um bvi companies tend to hold um mixed bag investments so so they're not they don't tend to fall into the pure equity holding entity definition again the the reason that there is this focus on equities as opposed to other assets is because the economic substance regime is trying to capture the institutional use of um, of 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 right. companies like like BBO companies. So that rather than that, so 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 um, you know having having a broader portfolio of underlying investments is what we typically see yeah. uh, in family offices. It means that you just fall entirely outside of scope. Yeah, and that, yeah. So- and then and then it's really working with your with your providers um, with your trust companies. Uh, with your with your legal counsel as well to understand yeah. what what is the what is the correct approach, uh, and the and the trust companies will often want to liaise with legal counsel for advice as to what is the correct amount. Legal counsel, you know, the way that we get there is by looking at all the guidance notes across jurisdictions to see what is the right. benchmark for this particular business model, and then we can right. advise on that.
0: Right. Okay. The second question deals with the stack. Um, would not the fund management company have its own equity and debt holders? No. So uh, a managing, not a managed entity. So a managing entity doesn't have financial accounts. Okay, so you're only looking at what would be a part B entity. That's the one that would have financial accounts. So the managed entity is the one with financial accounts. The managing entity, the fund management company, does not have relevant financial accounts unless it's being used for anti-avoidance purposes. The last one is: um, Does phone, does mobile phones also get hacked? How can we prevent it? How quickly can we answer that one, Jez? Uh, uh, let me <laughs> let me answer. Both of you let have me a answer fight that, about Jez. answering that one. Yeah, Jess, let, let me answer
4: that, Jez, because it's quite technical. Um, but uh, the, the answer is: you can and you can't. So uh, the ah. bad guys are, are looking to um, uh, tempt you into getting malicious apps on your phone. So just try and avoid clicking on links. Just only go to the authorized app stores. To get the apps, don't click on uh, you know the update emails or messages to update apps because they're generally malicious. But right. unfortunately, at a government level, uh, long story, they can inject it at the telecom level. So um let's not go there, right? But uh, right. but look, I know it's short time. And a few people have been connecting with me on LinkedIn. I noticed that. and Please do because I'm happy to answer these questions. And more than you do that.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, then guys. Well, look, I think that's it. We're at uh, an hour and a half. I'd just like to. Thank everyone that's contributed Andrew thanks very much for coming on board john as always, thank you. Aki thanks for tuning in from from all the way from Cyprus and, of course, Nancy thanks for waking up so early and Steve, um, both of which are in. In, in Jersey and uh, for Paul in Hong Kong, thank you very insightful and jazz in Singapore thanks very much, and for everybody that's viewed it and stay stuck around Thank you for spending time on this webinar and. We'll have more in, in future on, on obviously family offices as a topic okay thanks very much, and I think that's that'll be all today thanks. Thanks, Zach.